Hello, and welcome to the Freedom Challenge online podcast. Here at the Freedom Challenge, we strive to do good by helping enslaved women and children to do more than you ever thought physically possible and to do it together by connecting women with a heart for a hurting world. We hope you enjoy your time being informed and encouraged with host Tracy Doherty and our amazing guests. So let's get ready and join Tracy for this week's episode. Hey, Freedom Sisters and listeners, Tracy Doherty here, Director of Freedom Challenge. Thank you for joining me today. And, you know, we're wrapping up a whole month of anti-human trafficking awareness. Some of you, I hope many of you got to join our Freedom Challenge Live that was held on January 16th. But if you didn't, what's exciting about that is you can still register to receive the content and just listen after the fact. There's a whole sisterhood who came together on that day just to continue to grow and learn and pray together and really refocus on the kingdom work that Freedom Challenge does. You know, at this conference, we got to hear from some pretty remarkable frontline workers from various countries and how they are making an impact in freeing women and children. And by way of reminder, the Freedom Challenge funds OM projects throughout the world and our um, agreed upon and network projects. We get the opportunity to advocate and fundraise and engage in relationships with those OM projects. So uh, just as as a way of reminder. So now we are gonna continue our discussion with two very remarkable Christ followers that are making a transformational impact in the U.S. So we're going to hear from Dr. Christina Crenshaw and Esther Nelson. And today I am so honored to interview Esther Nelson. She is the founder and the CEO of Safety Compass, And she is someone that I've really wanted to interview now for a while for this podcast. So it is a thrill for me to have her here with us today. And she has really, you'll hear, harnessed her influence and her personal power for the good of humanity. And how I met Esther was through a a mutual friend, a mutual ministry acquaintance. Some friends of mine had me over for a dinner and invited this gentleman who began to just share about Esther Nelson and the work that she does. And as he was speaking, I was like, I would like to know about this woman and her work. Can I have her number? And I reached out and this relationship began to uh, establish. She and her team came to an event with me in Portland, Oregon last year. And as I heard them share about the work of Safety Compass, about her personal testimony, about her passion behind what she does, I was sold. So now I am officially the champion of Safety Compass's uh, fan club. So, but on on a real note here, I just want to share some of the very real uh, just accomplishments that Esther has done in her life. So first of all, she's a crime victims advocate for 16 years. So for 16 years, she's been serving sexual assaults, domestic violence, sex trafficking victims and survivors. Esther has trained approximately 21 
8,500 people on topics such as sexual assault, sex trafficking, suicide intervention, crisis intervention, and collaborative practices between advocates and law enforcement. Esther provides expert witness testimony on trafficking dynamics and victimology upon request and so much more. So basically, she's a superhero. And she is here with us today. There is so much more I could say about her, but I'm going to let her say some other dimensions of her life and introduce herself. Tell us a little bit about where she lives, her family, some of her hobbies, and what she does outside of all of the things I just shared. So Esther, without further ado, welcome. And would you share a little bit with us? Sure. Thank you so much for having me. I'm just really excited and grateful to be here, Tracy. Um, so a little bit about myself. I, you know, you, you heard just a little bit about uh, my professional background. I grew up in rural Oregon. Um, I went to college, um, graduated from Merrill Hurst University, um, did a stint of my college exposure in Reno, Nevada, um, where I started working actually, and thought I was going to go into the field of psychology, uh, which I did, but thought I was going to do you know something really different with my with my focus. Um, but I started volunteering while I was going to college at a women's center who did emergency response, um, sexual violence emergency response to the a local emergency room. And in my volunteer work, I um, realized that it was really um, teaching me about my own life, sort of probably backwards, <laughs> because as I as I went out and met with people, I realized their own life experience was reflective of my of my experience. Um, and so I learned a lot as I went along. Um, and I instead of going into a sort of a therapeutic track to do like psychiatry, which is my initial goal, I kind of derailed because I just loved advocacy so much and um, just stuck with the crisis intervention end of the spectrum and, you know, got my degree, but stayed in advocacy and eventually um, kind of coordinated that program and then moved back home to Oregon here um, more locally to the Portland metro area. I live outside of Portland by about an hour, but um, just got back home and wanted to plug into the local advocacy scene. So I started working at a rape crisis center and, um, you know, reconnected to my family. I'm really close to my family. They all live up in this area and um, just wasn't really enjoying my work there and felt like it was, you know, definitely part of my calling. But um, I was really struck by uh, one particular population that I had worked with in Nevada because not only did it resonate with me on a personal level, but um, I also felt like it was potentially the most marginalized group of people um, I'd ever worked with in, in the United States. And that was people who had experiences in the sex industry. There was just so much stigma against them that at the time when they were coming in to access medical treatment, which in every state has federal funding to give them a free exam if they've been sexually assaulted, um, they would come in and, and ask for an exam or request an exam, but they were being denied treatment because, you know, this sort of theory that sex offender, or excuse me, uh, sex workers can't be sexually assaulted, right? If you're a prostitute, you can't be raped. And I say that with big air quotes, uh, because obviously that's not true. Um, but their inability to access basic medical care, and some of it was like really dire, dire need medical care, um, was appalling to me. And it felt so um, otherworldly that I really wanted to take that passion and do something locally. So I was working at a rape crisis center here locally. And I said to my boss, very naively, I said, you know, I know that we do emergency room response, but I have this 
just burning desire that if we got anybody who came in who had an experience in the sex industry, I just want to volunteer on the kind of on the side that I would be their advocate. Um, I just feel like I'm personally equipped for my own experience, which I can talk about in a minute. But um, I thought that that would be like a small portion of my side job volunteer time on top of my job. And obviously that, you know, long story short, that uh, was very naive to think that that was such a small need in the community. It's an overwhelming need that grew into a pilot project, which grew into an entire sort of city falling sort of on its face, realizing, oh my goodness, we are overwhelmed with this need. And actually trafficking in the United States domestically is a huge need uh, for, for response. It's a huge issue. It's actually the most, you know, it's the largest economy in the world is the sex industry. It's, it's so pervasive. And so I, at the early stages of that, I, I was beginning as a volunteer. And then that kind of, um, you know, my, my career has sort of morphed since then. And I, we can talk all about that. But that's sort of my background. My, my family's here locally. Um, I've got two wonderful daughters, um, three and mm-hmm. six. Um, I, I, my partner has four kids. We have a family of six kids <laughs> and um, wow. we're together. Uh, we're uh, very kind of connected to the criminal justice process for both. Both of us have different jobs in the, in the field. And um, I just am so grateful that my job gets to give me a platform to do what my heart's and spiritual calling is as, as a job. Yeah. It- <laughs> Yeah. Well, it's very interesting when as a Christ follower, your career and your calling merge, not everyone has that. And you really have that succinct career and calling interfacing with one another. You're right. So I guess I would even say with that, you know, this is, and we'll get a little bit more into your story and the nuts and bolts of um, the organization that you started and that you're a part of, but what do you do on the side for fun? What are some <laughs> of your favorite hobbies or things that help you like recalibrate and focus? And I n- imagine having two kids is a big um, undertaking in and of itself, but what are some things that you love to do? It is. Well, you know, obviously being a mom can take up every second of your free time. And and I, I feel, you know, it's certainly when you go to work and you see the the desperation of children who don't have safe caretakers um, I feel so challenged wow. and responsible to be the best parent I can be. I mean, that's a that's a big responsibility for all of us, right? But I, man, is that so obvious to me every single day? So I love being a mom. Um, I do horseback riding. Yeah. That's probably my favorite, um, just personal Ooh. me time. Horses are so yeah. um, healing to be around because they're congr- they understand human emotion, but they don't judge it because you know they're not socialized like we are, and so very healing to be around. So I, I do horseback riding, I do hiking. I just love the Northwest; has the most beautiful terrain to just kind of get lost in and decompress away from trauma. And that's probably the majority yeah. of my free time is spent either in the wilderness, like in the woods, or on a horseback. <laughs> That sounds really healthy because you have a full, full plate, but I love the yeah. opportunities that you're taking to, you know, keep your mind fresh. And like you said, be, you're around trauma, but pulling yourself out of that and refilling. So thank you. That's good. So before we get into the nuts and bolts of actually what you do and what Safety Compass does, I want to talk a little bit more about this compelling part of the story I heard you share at the conference we were together in Oregon Mm -hmm. last year. 
and how your personal story really intersected your desire to start Safety Compass and is a lot of the engine, you know, I think you shared what you experienced coming out of college Mm -hmm. and, um, but also there's that personal part of that story. Would you open up and talk a little bit about that? Absolutely. You know, you never know what you're being equipped for at the time. You know, that's the kind of thing that hindsight gives you. Um, But for myself, um, I had been, uh, I started actually at a different college and um, came home after a couple years there. My parents had gotten divorced and so our finances had changed. And I was, you know, a very, very poor, struggling college student, as one can imagine. You know, that that time in your life where you're just eating top ramen, like living on your friend's couch kind of a time, right? (laughs) And uh, And lots of peanut butter too. Did you do peanut butter too? Exactly. Cheap protein. That's what it's all about when you're in college, right? (laughs) (laughs) Spoonfuls of Jiffy. Yes, that's so that was me. And I was looking for a cheap place to rent. That was my goal. And, you know, this was back, I'm going to totally date myself, but this was back when um, social media was um, just emerging as like a thing, you know? And so, you know, I was a smart kid. Like I had, I thought that I had pretty good street smarts. I wasn't, you know, I didn't have my, have my head in the clouds too, too bad. Um, I, if someone had asked me, do you use like internet safety? I would have been like, well, yeah, you know, not really knowing what that meant. Um, and so I had this thing called, um, MySpace. If anybody is, you know, that old, they'll know, oh yeah, MySpace was the very first iteration. I remember. Yeah. Yeah. So I had that and, you know, I had posted, you know, to my friends like, Hey, like something about like, I'm looking for an apartment for rent. And, um, so I think the kind of the word got out, I was looking for an apartment. Anyway, I got this message, um, somehow connected through my space, this person reached out and they uh, said, Oh, you know, I have an apartment that's for rent. It was right within my price range. And they said that they were the cousin of one of my friends on my space. And so I thought, oh, okay, well, they're family. That's great. And that's just what I need. So I said, okay, I'll, I'll, I agreed to meet them to go over to look at this apartment. Um, what I didn't know, though, was that they had stalked my page. They weren't actually a family member of one of my friends at all. They were a registered wow. sex offender in prison for you know, a different state's version of what's compelling prostitution, which means trafficking. And um, they met, they actually came to Oregon from a different state to meet me. Uh, with the goal of what we call breaking into the industry, taking someone and forcing them into the industry. And so that was my experience as a completely, honestly, very naive um, kid from the country um, in rural Oregon. Uh, And I had been, you know, I came from a wonderful, safe, lovely family. I had basically a 4.0. I did four sports and was in, you know, leadership at school. And I was very involved and I didn't have a lot of the same life um, challenges that many people who are trafficked face. And that honestly mm. is just privilege that allowed my my life trajectory to to be where it's at, you know, um, and sort of exit that experience so quickly. It was a very like small experience and kind of a blip on the radar screen, not in terms of trauma, but in terms of my exposure. Um, because for myself, I had, you know, been raised to believe in my own worth and rights and boundaries. And so for me, I could look at that experience and say, well, that was wrong and be able to exit. But I, it took resources to be able to do that. And I lived in fear of my life for probably about a year that, you know, his threats against my family, you know, he said, I'll, you know, I, can, I can come and find your family and kill them. And won't you feel responsible for that if you leave? And I left anyway, wow. but that's because I had a place to go. And as I, you know, kind of came full circle and began to see people with similar experiences as I was a professional in the field, 
I was like, well, gosh, if you don't have a place to go and like people, especially if they actually judge you for what just happened to you uh, and call you words like, you know, the the negative things we say about people in the industry um, without any understanding that most of them didn't get there by choice then how in the world would you ever get out? You know, I, I had all these privileges yes. and it, it was relatively easy compared to many people because of my privilege. But when you talk about the industry, it's out, it's impossible to talk about the sex industry without talking about privilege and power. So, uh, you know, that was my own exposure. And, uh, you know, I I look back at that and I think if, if I can be uh, instrumental in an exit ramp for anybody else, like that's the only difference between me and anybody that I see who's been in the life now, and they call it the life, like being trafficked. Um, you know, uh, six months, a year, maybe ten years of trauma like that wow. is that they just didn't have an exit ramp like I did. It's such an interesting way that you're you're talking about this an exit ramp, and then also your testimony and your openness to share about your own experience is a warning and an instruction to young girls who often um, can walk around not knowing or not mm-hmm. feeling that this could happen to them. So I really appreciate you sharing on for both of those things, um, inspiring for an exit ramp, there's a way out. And then also just being that, hey, pay attention to these steps. Here's some traps that uh, perpetrators would would want to enslave you in. And, and there's, and there's real cycles and, and predictability to some of those things. I'm sure you share about some of the predictable Mm -hmm. trickery that happens within that, that -hmm. even knowing it ahead of time is helpful, but I'm so thankful for that script. Go ahead. I was just gonna say, we do, we train about red flag uh, behaviors in people who are grooming uh, young people Mm -hmm. to teach young people to look for grooming techniques. Yeah, that's good. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that. But I just wanted to thank you for sharing openly about your personal, the personal interfacing of this story with what what you've gone on to do. And um, uh, I really appreciate that. So can you give us a high level picture of what Safety Compass does? Like on an average work week, what do you and what does what does your staff do? Like what does it actually look like in your area? And I know you also you can speak into this as well. You've you've created these models that are now in other parts of the country as well. Absolutely. So our so Safety Compass does 24-hour response at the request of a couple different multidisciplinary team members, uh, different roles within the criminal and social justice world who may see uh, potentially trafficked youth and then call uh, our team, which is we are a nonprofit advocacy group, to the scene. So we have this 24-hour response team that goes out in person to do an intervention and support safety planning and emotional support for young people who have been identified as a possible trafficking victim. So law enforcement will call us out, juvenile justice, child welfare, or emergency room nursing staff. So those are like the four professional roles that may interface with someone kind of in the field on the very front lines who they think has been trafficked. And then they'll call us out. Uh, Sometimes we're even embedded in proactive work. Like if there's a law enforcement sting, we'll be embedded in the sting to be available right there. And our goal is to meet with someone. You know, the lovely thing about being a community-based advocate is that 
we don't have an agenda. Like we're not there to do mm. investigative work, prosecutorial work. Um, we don't put people on probation or parole. We, we literally are just there for them as their advocate, supporter, celebrator, like life speaker, like we're just there for them. And that is such a privilege. Um, we have an hour response time to a four county region. So it's a large, like sort of multi-million number of, of folks that we're serving in terms of like just the population uh, here in the area. And uh, with that, um, we'll go out, we'll meet with people, we'll come up with a safety plan, then we'll wrap around them as they go into hopefully some sort of emergency housing. We'll go with them to court as they testify at grand jury or go forth to trial. Um, and then as they sort of emerge outside this sort of like kind of crisis intervention time of their life, then we'll do ongoing just support. We call it our community and community support is where we just say, you know what, we're here for the long haul. Certainly if, you know, people feel like they no longer need services, they can move on and we want to support self-sustaining like life thriving. But we also realize a lot of times kids don't have that support network. And so we don't ever want them to feel like there's a void in their life for love because ultimately this is a relational thing. Mm -hmm. Pimps pimps absolutely break down people's feelings of self-worth that they can be worthy of receiving love. And then the sex industry itself, as you can imagine, is completely damaging to people's attachments when you have to sleep with, you know, 20 people a day. That What that does to people is really, yeah. it can be very wow. traumatizing. And so we just want to say to people, like, we want to be there for you when you graduate high school or college or have a baby or, you know, some big milestone. We want to be there for you when actually there are no milestones happening right now. And maybe you actually tried something and it kind of didn't work. And now you're feeling like you've experienced failure or you're questioning your own ability. Like the ways that someone who could consistently show up that loved you, like maybe as a safe family member, we want to be able to provide that obviously in a professional role, but be there along the way so that you don't feel like you've lost like all sense of family because you stepped away from this unhealthy sort of family dynamic, which happens in the industry. The pimp will act like, you know, he'll call himself, you have to call me King or daddy. And then the people in his quote unquote stable are supposed to act like family, but it's a very dysfunctional family. Right. And so we're trying to set a model for like what positive behavior and positive boundaries and relationships can look like for the long haul. So that's community. And that's sort of the whole trajectory. Wow. We work with people like from the beginning when we meet them through yeah. forever. <laughs> yeah. And I want to say something to what I'm just even hearing you share that, you know, just framing it in what you're doing, even in uh, a biblical worldview. Mm -hmm. I think about even the terminology you just, you just said, we're with them. Mm -hmm. um, we're with these individuals. And I think about Jesus, right? Emmanuel, God with mm -hmm. us. You're really mm -hmm. being, that's the in, incarnate. You're really walking in that incarnational from a Christian perspective. I am with you as you go through dark times, hard times, happy times. Yes. That is beautiful. Like even that's the role of the Holy Spirit, right? He's He's not always just removing us from, or, you know, um, you know, you're done, you're out of your trial, but he's with us in it, guiding. And it's, you are really um, a flesh and blood picture of that. That, that it's is really, uh, mm -hmm, I can, I can see that. And, and I, and I can't imagine that there could be something that would be more redemptive and actually effective than the connection point that we as humans made in God's image are made to connect with others. So when that is 
you know, destroyed or removed through attachment bonds. And then you're there in this walking with gentle process. Mm-hmm. That it's it really is quite remarkable as as a biblical model as well. I was just going to say I, th- that actually is you know when we when we build what's called case management that's like the model of ongoing support we have. Nothing is a greater teacher to me than walking with people and figuring out how do I extend grace today and unconditional positive regard, love, um, unconditional hope for people as sometimes they relapse into the life, but that every day showing up consistently and never giving up on people. Like they have taught me about grace more than anything else in my life. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and also that we talked earlier about, you know, horseback riding and being out in the wilderness, there is an ample need, I'm sure for you and your team to stay really filled with the grace and the life and the hope of Christ, especially when you're probably seeing, you know, one inch forward, one foot back two feet mm-hmm. forward, five feet back, and being a part of that dance of what eventually becomes freedom. And you're right in the center of that messy, beautiful. And that is, that is a, that's a weighty place for you and your team. And something else I heard you say too, that I just wanted to highlight was it, it's changing the language around what human trafficking is. So there's often the stigma over sex workers. Like you said in the beginning, not even being able to be treated or regarded as um, a victim of rape because of what they did. And being able to create a broader language to encompass that so much of this comes from these marginalized backgrounds with, you know, uh, power struggles within and not having options. And there's human trafficking in it without even knowing that that's what it is. Mm-hmm. I, I I really appreciate the language that you're providing to broad that, broaden that. And um, it brings a lot more dignity to the, the survivors. So as we continue on, I, I just want to hear a little bit about pre-COVID and then now. And, you know, how that's shifted your, your, your methods, how that's shifted the actual exploitation of, of victims of human trafficking. Like, has that, has that changed things and perhaps how your organization has had to navigate some of those issues? Sure. You know, we serve on average about 300 individuals a year. We may see them, you know, hundred times in a year, but, but through about 300 unique individuals every year at Safety Compass. And because of COVID and our inability to find safe ways to literally extract people from such uh, dangerous situations, we've seen a pretty significant decrease in our ability to do new interventions, new extractions with like law enforcement help and um, kind of assertive work. And so we've had about a 30, between a 30 and 40% decrease on our, our intakes this year, which is actually kind of terrifying to me because it's not at all indicative of a reduction of trafficking. Actually, we've seen that increase. Uh, work that used to be done kind of in the shadows online, we've seen go back to the actual track, which is like the road where people walk to get sold. The track's uh, more busy than it was. The internet is exploded. Um, it's it's busier than I've ever seen it. Um, the stories of the youth that we do work with share about just what their experiences are like, how much more dangerous they are, how much less bargaining power they have. Um, people who were trafficked before or had gotten out have relapsed because 
rent, you know, we're also at this interesting time of like lack of housing and the housing crisis has gotten significantly worse. And so inability to find safe housing, even if you are out, has made people return out of desperation. So we've seen a very unfortunately bleak and pretty desperate um, experience of people who were right on the edges of being able to exit the life or or just had and sort of relapsed back or um, are ongoing, um, goingly trafficked and our inability to get to them because we can't do a sort of work because of COVID. So, so we have that going on, but all the while um, we've also seen a really, really beautiful um transformation in our, we got creative. We're like, we're going to stop just because we can't go out and do in-person stings. And so the online sort of way that we've learned how to um, navigate a communication has made us like, we're able to meet with people, you know, 10 times as many people than we used to. And uh, our ability to communicate with them on private, like um, social media platforms has made them, you know, they can access us now, even if they get traffic to a different state or as they couldn't before. And so I think that there's a lot of hope in the ways that we have moved forward our ability to communicate. We just now are charged with the responsibility of figuring out how to get to people who are not yet helped. Yeah. And that's how I want to engage the women who are listening to this, that we're hearing real live scenarios of how we can pray and how we can lean in with the frontline people who are in these spaces seeking wisdom on how to do that. And I applaud and appreciate you not pulling back, but pressing in. And I, and I feel like, you know, specifically, uh, I, I mean, we're coming from a, a biblical worldview here at Freedom Challenge, and I know that you are a believer of, in Christ, although your organization is not necessarily tagged as that, which gets you into all kinds of wonderful places. But we really are dependent on the wisdom of the Holy Spirit on how yes. to make the moves and be in step with how we're how you're going to get where you need to get. And yes. um, the fact that you're showing that tenacity and that and that you know, empowered will to do that for others. I, I I pray that that motivates our listeners as well to not just put their hands up and say it's too big and then turn their back, which is what a lot of us do when we feel overwhelmed. I would, beg you, I would beg you not to, because we, we have people on the front line who are literally sitting below like the Hoover Dam with their fingers in the holes and water spilling out all around them. Please don't leave those of us who are having our fingers in the holes of the dam. Yeah. And we'll hear a little bit more about how we could, um, at the end, you can look in the show notes about Safety Compass and how you might support and get involved and learn more about what Esther and her team does. So we'll talk more about that and you'll find that in the show notes. But, you know, most of us who are listening today are mothers, we're sisters, we're neighbors, brothers, we, you know, and it's important for us to realize, like you just said, this is not an issue in which we can kind of walk away from. We actually have a moral and an ethical and as a Christ follower, a biblical responsibility to both be informed and to actively care about this issue. This is a primary thing. The vulnerable, the oppressed, the marginalized, the widow, the orphan, the abandoned. This is that whole population. So this is where Jesus's focus is on. And we don't really get to just turn our back from that. 
So with that said, what do we need to know? Like what resources are available to the everyday person who's like, okay, I hear you. I'm moved. I know that, you know, they can, you can get involved with Freedom Challenge, but what resources are available? Like, what do we need to know? Sure. I mean, I think from a few different perspectives, certainly if you're in Oregon, reach out to Safety Compass. If you're um, needing support or you know someone who does, the National Human Trafficking Hotline is always a great clearinghouse because they reconnect people to their own local communities. But I would say, you know, moving forward with your own power and also the place that just God's given you access to and a platform and your own gift set. If, if we all looked at our own children and the children in our communities as like, that's the next wave of primary prevention. Like you can make a very like lasting impact on young people who may, that may prevent them from being trafficked. It also may prevent them from being the victim of domestic violence or some other form of sexual violence uh, because they understand growing up, I'm worthy of respect and relationship. Um, I have been believed in. Um, And so then when they're treated counter to that, they realize that's not who I am. Um, That's not who I was born to be because we as adults have modeled something different um, and and shown that to be true in our relationships with them. So while we can, you know, certainly reach out to credible sources for intervention, if it's already gotten to that point, I would love to talk to people about their own ability to change the future by how they invest in kids around them, because that's something all of us can do. That's good. You mentioned earlier um, about red flags we might see, and Mm -hmm. maybe you could share a little bit about what those red flags are. And for any parents listening, you also spoke a little bit to the point that the internet is going crazy with this issue. What do we need to be? Because this happens so subversively under the nose of so many parents. And you imagine during this period in history, you know, children are at home online, they're isolated, their parents are working, they're distracted, they're not getting outside, um, you know, influence from teachers and others. So is there any, you know, red flags, tips, what would you offer parents conversations to have with their children? From from parent to parent, I can just say, you know, having the internet in your home, you know, with COVID, there's even that much more exposure. So that many more times, more, more opportunity for this to happen. But you have sex offenders and traffickers in your home when you have the internet. You just do. If, if there's social media platforms on anybody's phone, you have it on your phone and anywhere that phone goes with you. And so treat it like that, like all the opportunity for education that it affords you, but also all the opportunity for exposure to very um, dangerous people. And so you, I think we, we have to equip our kids with enough information that they can make informed decisions to help navigate, honestly, of what can be a very unsafe world. And so um, red flags to look for are if there's someone who reaches out to them to friend them or talk to them online that they don't already know from real, like, quote unquote, real life. Uh, if you can't verify their age that they go to, you know, a school where that would make them appear, Basically treat them as if you can't verify them and therefore they could be an unsafe person. Does that mean that they're going to, you know, probably shut down opportunity for some exposure to what will probably be benign people? Absolutely. But it's not worth the risk, right? They can make friends within their own school network. That's why I think schools work so hard to have encrypted conversations where people can't just be like hopping on to community chats where there's older people or people they can't verify. Um, If someone wants to ask them a bunch of personal questions, 
don't share personal information. In fact, just see that as a potential grooming technique. Traffickers want to know way too much information, way too quickly. And what they want to do is build a bond. And as soon as they have a bond, they're going to isolate that person, make them feel like they're the only person that can understand them in the world, turn them against their friends and family. Oh, they don't understand you, you know, or they don't think you have too many rules. They don't, they don't see how mature you are. Those are just, you know, typical angles that uh, an offender will use. And then once they've isolated them, they usually set up a meeting and upon meeting them, they'll pull them away. And that can be actually overt, like forcible kidnapping, but it also can just look like a groomed and very sexualized relationship, I say in air quotes, with the goal of doing something exploitative with them. It may seem like uh, fine until the point that they start asking them for nude pictures and actually never meet them in person. So in the same way that an a in-person relationship would break boundaries, consider an online relationship to look the same. Kids need to understand if someone asks you for a nude pic, that's like them coming at you and, and trying to get sexual with you in person. It's the same thing. So if, if that sound if that mm. seems strange in person, it's also strange online, right? So so just teaching them enough about what would be a, um, a potential grooming behavior um, that, that when it happens, because it will happen, that they see it for what it actually is. Grooming happens, yeah. unfortunately, to all of our... When we go to middle schools and we say, has anything like this ever happened to you? Has anybody reached out to you on Instagram and said, hey, shoot me a picture all literally all of them raise their hands. So we can't mm. ignore that. Wow. We can't. We have to have the open discussions and dialogues and as much as we want to be naive and, you know, pretend like it all is well to not have the conversations about these topics is irresponsible. Esther, I found um I have my children are mostly grown but I do have one at home and I found a great on- online tour uh tool and hey, I'm not selling this. So <laughs> I'm just telling you it's worked for me. Um and it's called Bark. And a mother yes. made it and really have you heard of that? Yes, it's I have it. So it's good. Great. Yes. Yeah, it has. It gives you just um the warnings of severity, super severe, and it goes through every platform of social media, all emails, all texts, and just spits it back out so that you can, then it also recommends action steps based on Mm -hmm. those. um, It flags bully conversations, it it flags um, violence. So I I don't know, I really love the mom who made this and I found it to be entirely helpful. Yeah, but I do think awesome. Yeah. It is. So, hey, everyone listening and you have children, check out Bark. (laughs) Um, But I I think that those practical tools, how to have the conversation, and most importantly, do not just avoid it and walk on and feel like you're, you're extra safe because you're at home. I, I totally, I, I totally agree. I can't, I can't agree more. NetSmarts also, there's a, a an online mm. um, website connected to the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children called NetSmarts. I highly encourage you to go there. Smarts that ends with a Z, not an S. Um, and just be, it's gonna, it may be uncomfortable. You know, if this is not your job every day, you may feel uncomfortable. I'm encouraging you. I'm challenging you. Have the conversation anyway, because while some discomfort might happen by sort of going into this territory, you may not be super familiar with it's okay to be uncomfortable. You'd much rather that than something happen to your child and then look back and think, gosh, I wish we had talked about this as a family. That's good. So everyone listening, we're going to put both of those links in the show notes so you can check them out. You've got a little homework. Even if you don't have children, you know someone who has children, you have nieces and nephews, and these are good opportunities for you to be resourced and equipped to 
be an advocate in your own home to the own children in your life and your world as Esther encourages us to do. So before we start wrapping this up, I would love to open this space up. Is there anything else you just want to add to the conversation? Anything just, you know, I, I feel like I need to say this. Um, I miss this. Just just have the space and go where you want. Sure. I really feel like if if every young person um, genuinely believed and knew how much they were loved and how incredibly multifaceted they are, how much potential they have for their own future, how no matter what has happened to them, you know, if it's a trauma, it's not reflective of who they are. And as they proceed in life, like if things blow up in their face or they they try something out and it fails, um, that that they aren't a failure, right? Like they are still like loved more than like we can possibly fathom, right? By the, you know, the God of the universe, right? So if, if we could help our children to see that and know that, um, I just think that the kids, the number of kids being recruited, they might be recruited. Like, like myself is a good example. Like you might be able to not stop all recruitment, but you know what? Once that happened, you'd see a huge change in how many kids stayed in the industry versus sought, sought help or when help was offered, they believed that they were worthy of it. And I think you'd also see a reduction in youth who are are exploited in traffic because some of those red flag behaviors, they don't they seem pretty um, it, they're hard to notice. I think if you're a young person with no dating history early on, but they begin to be noticeable later on as someone becomes unsafe or breaks down their boundaries or encourages them to do things they wouldn't normally do. I think youth who have been raised with a strong sense of identity begin to see things where they're like, gosh, that's not me or what you're saying. Actually, that's not who I am. That's not what I deserve. And so we really like that's just my I guess my last thing I'd be with people is the the more we pour into our kids and the, the youth in our lives around us. And, you know, maybe it's not your kids. Maybe you're like, gosh, I feel like we're doing pretty good as a family. What about their friends? Do they have a safe place to go after school? Mm. What about what if something happens to them in their life? You know, if we can extend that one more step to all the young people, maybe one step removed from our own family, that we can spend the rest of our lives working on that. And that, I think, is just where my heart goes. Because I love doing intervention work. You know, that's where I'm equipped. That's where I've been called. But gosh, if we could have more people upstream, <laughs> you know, yeah, that that's where yeah. the change can really happen. So please swim upstream and seek out kids in your life who just need to be reminded of, of who they were really born to be and how much they're loved. Mm. Reach before they need to be rescued, right? Yeah. Upstream. Yeah. I receive it. It's good. So as we close out, one of the reasons I had you on this podcast is I also just wanted to highlight to our listeners this amazing organization. I wanted them to hear your story, be impassioned about what you're doing and to check it out. But also I want to pray for you. So can you you give me a way that I can pray for you? And I will even do it now as we close. How can the Freedom Challenge Sisterhood and listeners be praying for you and Safety Compass? Oh, yes. Oh, I don't even have to skip a beat. I know. I just would pray that and anybody that's listening to, I encourage you, I invite you, I thank you ahead of time for praying for me in this way, that I can be in this time, which is a difficult time and maybe an unprecedented time even, uh, just so reflective of the joy in Christ that people see that and they can be inspired that no matter how hard circumstances are around us, we can still find joy. And 
that even in times where maybe people are feeling alone and there's a lot of isolation right now, and that's so true for our, the population we work with, that they could still feel seen and known um, by, you know, just the, the, the love of the universe, right? Like just a love that they have maybe have never even known before that they could see, seen, feel seen and known in a way that they haven't yet ever experienced. And that would give them joy. And if I can be a conduit of that, if I can see them to a degree and know them and, and also maybe even have an opportunity to share what brings me joy, makes me feel seen and known. Like I, I would love those opportunities to arise this year because I don't think I've ever seen a time in my life where people have felt more isolated, but God is an intimate God. And so I just want people to know, like there's that level of, of intimacy waiting for them if they're open to accessing it, you know, and, and that can bring them yes. you know, out of this time that just feels, you know, so people are, you know, sometimes people have been like, you know, either they're incarcerated or they're, they're, you know, socially distanced and maybe they haven't other than getting their food dropped off on their doorstep, they haven't ventured out. We're talking months sometimes. Right. And so never before in my life have I seen a time where people just needed to be in relationship and we have that right we have the ability to have relationship yes. right now. Right. And I just, I want to be a, an inspirer yep. to get to that. Yeah. Yep. And what's beautiful about this prayer request that you have is that God is all powerful, all knowing and all present. So yeah. if people are open and we're praying like he, this is an opportunity for on the backdrop of this loneliness and isolation. And certainly he uses people, but he's also supernatural and we know that all through scripture and even through history, God has a way of showing up in the most dire places, even through dreams and visions and, you know, uh, all of these sort of supernatural places that can happen. And, yeah. and then he can also connect you to those places. So it is my joy to pray for you. And I'm going to do it now, if that's okay, Esther. That's great. Thank you. Yes. Thank you for Esther. Thank you for Safety Compass. I want to honor the Freedom Challenge Sisterhood and community for their fervency and their desire to stay connected to this ongoing story, to know what's happening in the world and to lean in both in advocacy and giving and praying. All of those things, we want to show up big. And so for our friends together as a community, we lean in and we pray for the flourishing of Safety Compass even when there's drought. We pray that there would be ways to get into the small crevices and spaces to unknown humans that are just a statistic, but they are a face and a name to you. Would you show Safety Compass and Esther those faces and those names? Would you give them creative ways to reach people? Would you also show up big in the lives of boys and girls, men and women who are entrapped, who are alone, who are isolated, who don't feel any hope, who feel powerless. Holy Spirit, we pray that in this dark time in our world, that you would do what you do best. You would show up on the black nights of the souls and you would begin to speak and, and, and woo and draw and heal and love and affirm the significance of every human being in this world. We together 
pray and agree that the loneliness that is just falling on humanity and specifically a double loneliness for those that are enslaved in the areas of sexual exploitation and other areas that you would arrive the way that you always do, Emmanuel, God with us, not just God with those who have it all together, but for those who are lost and broken and sick and need a healer. We invite you into this space. It is our heart and our concern, and we lift our hands and we ask for your wisdom. I ask for your wisdom for Esther, for her team, for all the places and spaces that she touches. I pray for provision, and I pray most of all that she would walk in unexplainable joy and hope that the world may see her and her team and know that Jesus Christ is Lord. He is the Savior and the Healer and the Redeemer of all humanity. We ask these things together in the name of Jesus. Amen. Mm, that's good. I Yes. I am so glad that you are here with us today. Thank you for sharing your story, for informing us, for inspiring us, for, for just broadening our understanding of just the many layers of human trafficking in our country. I'm grateful for you. And this isn't going away. We're going to keep hearing back from you and supporting you. And we commit to pray for you, Esther. Thank you so much, Tracy. Yeah, yes. So ladies, let's just continue to do good, helping enslaved women and children to do more than you ever thought physically possible and to do it together with women who have a heart for a hurting world. God bless. Thanks for listening to the Freedom Challenge online podcast. If you liked what you heard, join the fight to set women and children on a pathway to freedom across the globe. We are a proud ministry of Operation Mobilization USA and encourage you to learn more at thefreedomchallenge.com and omusa.org for how you can get involved. Follow us on Facebook, on Instagram at the FCUSA, and don't forget to subscribe and leave a review to let us know what you think. We'll see you next time.